0: As we enter a new year, do you have great expectations? Do you? As we seek to take into the world the saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, what kind of responses should we reasonably expect to see? And what kind of reactions, either for us or against us, should we reasonably anticipate experiencing? They're significant questions. There have been occasions and there have been seasons when God either has been at work in remarkable times of revival or has appeared to be at work in revival. I say appeared because there have been spurious claims of revival And there have been exaggerated claims of revival over the years. Now, where there have been true seasons of real revival, you can find books providing accounts of God working in remarkable ways, such as many Christians never get to see or experience. Of course, it's interesting that one of the reasons that those times are remembered and chronicled is because they very often are not the normal experience of Christians or churches. That's why people write about them. Some were genuinely wonderful outpourings of God's spirit on communities, on towns. But some claims of revival have often been questionable. I've been doing a bit of research, found some interesting things. For many years, I grew up living next door to a lady who was saved and converted at one of the Billy Graham crusades in Haringey in 1954. And it was a real conversion. For the rest of her days, she lived as a Christian lady, attending one of the local churches. But we can view those kinds of crusades with rose-tinted spectacles, And with a false impression of the kind of impact that even someone like Billy Graham actually had. Now, I'm not here to trash Billy Graham, not for one moment. I have a few issues with some of the ecumenical nature of some of the things he did. But he was, I believe, greatly used by God to bring many people to faith in Christ. But even when those big crusades were taking place, could they truly be called a revival? It's reckoned that during his evangelistic ministry, about 3.2 million people were brought to faith. 3.2 million. Even if that's out by 10 or 20%, that's wonderful, isn't it? 3 million Christians resulting from his ministry. Perhaps who may not have been saved otherwise. Well, we acknowledge that. We rejoice over that, don't we? We should. But was that truly revival? Well, it's also estimated that the number of people who actually heard him preach is 2.2 billion. Well, that's remarkable, isn't it? That's a third of the world's population. But if we accept those figures, let's just ask a question. And it's not often I like to think about evangelism in this way, but let's just ask a question. We accept those figures, 3.2 million converted out of 2.2 billion who heard him, what percentage of his listeners got saved? 0.14. One in 700. the number of conversions, bearing in mind the number of people who heard him, was not as dramatic as you might imagine. I suspect some local churches get higher conversion rates than that. I think we probably have had at Belvedere actually. It's just that the numbers are smaller and we're too ready to be too dismissive of small numbers. And too easily impressed by the sheer scale of big crusades. We allow the scale of the spectacle, perhaps, to distort our view of what was actually happening. The reality is that most of the people who ever listened to Billy Graham were just as hard hearted and resistant to the gospel as anywhere else, because that's the nature of sinful hearts. And perhaps that helps to reinforce that local church should always be the beating heart of evangelism in the world. Now, that we should desire to see a moving of God's spirit in the world is without question. That we should pray for it. Who here would deny that? But does the Bible give us any indication of what we should reasonably expect the response to be when the gospel is preached. Well, we've just heard of one occasion. The man preaching ended up being stoned to death. Well, the Bible does. Now, from here on in, I'm leaving numbers and statistics and percentages behind because actually they can be a huge distraction uh, of not much help and in many ways are not the issue. So forget those things. But have open Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to call people to repentance. What does Jesus have to say to them? That should interest you greatly, shouldn't it? Now for certain there is some application to his apostles that was unique to them. We accept that but there are without question important principles here. And we would be the greatest of fools to ignore them. So let's not do that. And let's consider what Jesus actually says. What Jesus has to say about what we can often expect people's response to the gospel to be. And actually it's not what many Christians would like to anticipate. But his words also bring us great assurance. And his words also assure us of the help that is given to his people. Now the first two points this morning are going to draw from verses 16 to 26 and then the final point verses 27 to 32 and God willing we'll conclude the rest this evening. So what does Jesus say about when we are seeking to take the gospel out into the world? Number one, into the mouth of the enemy is where we go. When Christian men and women take the gospel into the world, you might expect that Jesus would paint you as being this all-conquering force for good who will overturn all before you. Picture you as this mighty army before whom the powers of darkness will all simply fall down and submit. Have you seen those machines they use to resurface roads? At the front, there's this machine that rips up and strips away all the old surface and then following on behind is the one that lays the the new tarmac and as those two machines pass by, the old potholed road is ripped up and done away with to be replaced by this shiny, smooth vision of newness. That's what the church is like, Surely. And we just get to walk behind on this nice shiny tarmac. Actually, it's more like a difficult path through the mountains in reality. What does Jesus say? I'm sending you out, and you will be like sheep amongst wolves. Not quite the image, perhaps, that we're expecting. Perhaps doesn't sound quite so promising, does it? If a pack of wolves comes across a flock of sheep, what happens? Well, you don't need me to expand upon the atrocities that are being carried out against those who belong to Christ. We've heard about the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. Well, millions have gone after him. We were reminded the other week, in the, in the 20th century, more Christians died for the faith than in all the centuries put together before them. Unspeakable things have been done, are being done to the Lord's people simply because they are the Lord's people. The church has never been met with what you would describe as universal success from a worldly perspective. Never, never will be. It's a raging battle that you're thrust into. And if in this new year you will faithfully stand to represent Christ and his gospel, you can expect that there will be those who will not give you a warm hug and a cup of tea and a biscuit. You'll be met with open hostility. Don't be surprised When society rejects the gospel and rises up against it, it's exactly what Jesus said you'll expect to see and he says it over and over again. Don't be surprised when people try to use the law courts to punish and silence Christians, verse 17. Do we not see that today? Of course we do. Why are we surprised? We're warned of it in the scriptures. Verse 17, it's there. The gospel message is foolishness to them. Their need of the gospel escapes them completely. What you see being put before you by Jesus in this passage is all about persevering in faithful labour. That's what gospel work often is, you know. Persevering in faithful labour. Producing results for ourselves. You getting results and taking all the credit for it. That's a theme the world loves. You get the results, you do it, you take the credit. It was all you. And the world applauds. It's a chief characteristic of sinfulness why because it leaves God out of the picture completely it gives God no place it was all me what the Bible presents us with is working hard in faithfulness and obedience and leaving the results with God That's what marks out the Christian from the sinful world in which you live. Faithful, obedient, glad in it and leaving the results with the Lord. You can only come to the same conclusion when you read the writings of the apostles. Paul sums it up perfectly. This one sows, this one waters, but God... God gives the increase. Jesus teaches here that just as we'll see ably demonstrated in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, many of the hardships that are endured in making Christ known are expressly the providence of God, verse 18, in order to provide further opportunity for witness and testimony. The difficulties that come, the oppression that comes is the opportunity for you to stand again and speak once more. The problem with evangelicalism in the Western world is that we've been fooled into thinking that there's some clever strategy that can be employed that makes producing converts just like picking apples off a tree in autumn. It isn't. It doesn't work that way. Most Christians were quite like that image of the machines ripping up and laying the new road to be true of what it means to to be at work in the gospel in these days, just being able to walk along the lovely smooth road that's being laid along with the rest of the crowd. That's not how gospel works described in the Bible. It's not the kind of experience that New Testament gospel ministers had. But that's the kind of experience that many today are taught to expect and then they become completely disheartened and disillusioned when it doesn't happen. And the enemy is often much closer to home than you'd like it to be. Sometimes it's actually in your own home. Within households and families, Jesus teaches here, one will rise up against another even be willing to put them to death. There are millions in the world today who would face just that if they turned to Christ. There are many who have. And Jesus says, don't suppose for one moment that you deserve to fare any better in this world than Jesus did. Verses 24 to 25. Those who hate Christ will hate you as well. Because you love Christ, those who despise him will despise you. If they were prepared to say that Jesus was of Beelzebub, Jesus was of Satan, if they were prepared to say that about Christ, what kinds of things will they be prepared to say about you? But don't let that concern you and don't be afraid, verse 26. Because there's nothing that's hidden from God. On judgment day, all will be revealed, all will be judged. Be content to leave that with God. It's into the mouth of the enemy that we're called to go. Are you ready to go there in 2020? And then secondly, Jesus says that that being the case, we are to be wise and discerning. And I want to focus on two particular phrases at this point. At the the end of verse 16, this well-known phrase, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And then in verse 23 when he says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. With all this talk of persecution and oppression, you mustn't get the idea that Jesus just wants you to simply be a sitting duck waiting to be shot at the first opportunity. You don't court controversy. You don't flirt with danger just for the sake of it. But neither do you do all within your power to hide away from it and avoid it. So much wisdom and grace is needed in this regard. What's Jesus saying here? Well, you are to be those who in terms of your manner In terms of your conduct, you give offence to no one. You're to be those who seek to live at peace with everyone. You're to be those who seek to do good to all. You're to be exemplary in love and kindness and care and consideration to everybody who comes across your path. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, you will judge wisely when to speak, what to say. But in all of this, you'll never compromise when it comes to living in obedience to God's word or speaking the truth. And you'll know when it's the time when you have to take your stand and say no. Verse 23 is interesting in that if persecution comes in one place or for a particular reason, it doesn't follow that you're duty bound to remain there. Now, it might be as on occasions when Paul was arrested, there was no obvious means of human escape from that situation and so you have no option but to endure it. The Lord might put you in a situation where that's the, the case. You, you simply have to trust him and endure through it. But on other occasions when opposition and persecution was the response of the people towards Paul's preaching and that happened often, he simply left that town and moved on to the next There'll always be another place that needs to hear the gospel. Perhaps you are the only Christian in your home or at work or at university or in the classroom. Be both wise and gentle. Seek to live a life that touches others with the kind of goodness and gentleness and grace that earned Jesus the nickname the friend of sinners. Let that be you. And so, for example, in the home, be the most loving and caring husband, wife, parent, child, brother, sister, you can be. In the workplace, be the most loyal, honest, trustworthy, trustworthy, hardworking member of staff that your employer has. With any unsaved acquaintances that you have, be friendly and kind and generous. Speak of Christ as you have opportunity. Speak of Christ when you have no option but to speak of him. And know when is the right time not to say anything but just to be a Christian to them. The amazing promise that's given in verses 19 and 20 is that God, the God who indwells you in the person of Christ's spirit, the God who will be with you in the person of Christ's spirit, he, he will give you words to say. He will provide you with the wisdom that you need that at that moment you feel you're just completely lacking. But he's there, he's in you, he's with you. He knows and he will provide and he will strengthen and he will equip you. You have the promise of Christ on that. And there's a phrase in here that needs a little bit of uh, clarification. He who endures to the end will be saved. It's at the end of verse 22. He who endures to the end will be saved. Just some clarification. Jesus is not teaching that your salvation is dependent upon your enduring. He's saying that your salvation is shown to be genuine by the fact that you endure. Salvation is not the earned reward for those who endure, endurance is part of the new nature of all who have been saved and so they do endure to the end. And so we see there are, there are many things here that we ought to make a regular matter for prayer, for ourselves, for one another. Pray for the wisdom of which Christ speaks Ask God to grant it to you. Why not pray every morning as you head off into your workplace, into university, in your home, if there are many in your home who don't know the the Lord, Lord, today give me the wisdom that I need to say what I ought to say. Give me the words to speak. Will God not answer prayers like that? Of course he will. Pray to know when to speak, what to say, when to keep quiet. Pray for boldness, pray for gentleness. Pray for a godly life, a godly witness, perseverance. This, you see, is what gospel work is all about. These are the things that ought to occupy us and be our concern day by day. Finally, because you fear God, you therefore have no fear of man. That was Stephen when he was stoned to death. No fear of what men can do to him because of this righteous fear of God that was within him. Well, fearing God and not man means firstly that you're governed by what God has said and you you remain faithful to what God has spoken. And you have nothing meaningful to say except that which God has already said. That lies at the heart of preaching, you see. I have nothing meaningful to say to you except that which God has already said in his word. And these are the things that govern our lives. These are to be the things that we speak of. And as for the world, what does Jesus say? Well, these are the things which, as it were, have been given in darkness and in secret. These are the things that that we have come to know as Christian people. And, and your role now is to shine as his lights in the world and to make them known. And you have no message or truth to declare, save that which God has already made known in his word. If you want to speak to people about the things of God, speak to them about the things that you find in the Bible. If you want to speak to people about their need of Christ, Speak to them about the things that you find in the Bible because everything that they need is in God's Word and nowhere else. Speak these truths that God has made known to you into this world and be to them light. This holds true for me as a pastor and preacher but it holds just as true for you as a witness and ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. The only thing that will do them good is that which you can bring them from God's word. Not your thoughts, not your opinions, so and so says this, so and so says that. Bring them the truths of God's word concerning Christ and sin and the gospel. Your holy and reverent fear of God you'll find will far outweigh any fear that you had of man. Men may be able to take your life, but there's more to you than flesh and blood, isn't there? You have a soul that is safe in the everlasting arms of God and a promised resurrection for your body. Let a man or woman take your life, and they only succeed in hastening you on to glory. One old saint once said, when evil men threatened to kill him, So let me get this straight. You want to threaten me with heaven. The psalmist said, I've put my trust in God, I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. So I will not fear. What can man do to me? What great love and care the Lord has for his people. What great providence is working for them as we've recently remembered. And as you fix your heart and mind... Upon standing before God in Christ. The circumstances of your physical well-being will fade away in importance and significance. Because all is truly well with your soul. And that's what matters. And hardships and sufferings that may come they are as nothing compared to the riches that you have in Christ, are they not? And you become so taken up with the plight of those who are lost and without hope because without Christ, they are the ones who will forever be destroyed, body and soul, in hell when they fall into the hands of the living God. Hell's a very real place. Hell is a very real destination and the only means of escape is that salvation which has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, his resurrection. That salvation which you lay hold of by turning away from your sins and by faith trusting only in him. This is the salvation that Christ calls us to take out into the world. Who will be saved? And how many such things are not revealed to us? That we should desire to see a great moving of God's Spirit is without question. That we should pray for it. Who here would deny that? But how will they hear the gospel? From whom will they hear it? What cost are we ready to pay? In order that they may, fearing God, not man, going out into the world with godly wisdom and discernment, taking the undiluted, unpolluted good news of Christ into the mouth of the enemy, faithfully and prayerfully persevering, secure in the promises that Christ will strengthen and equip you as you do so. This is the life and work of Christ's people.